Hey there. Thanks for listening to the Greg Laurie Podcast, a ministry supported by Harvest Partners. I'm Greg Laurie, encouraging you. If you want to find out more about Harvest Ministries and learn more about how to become a Harvest Partner, just go to harvest.org. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are glad to be here today. And we come with a heart that is expectant for what you will do for us and through your word to our hearts. So we ask you to speak to each of us now because you are with us and you are ready to change us. So bless this time of Bible study, we would ask. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can all be seated. Well, hello to Harvest Riverside and, of course, right here, Harvest Orange County and to all of you watching at Harvest at home, around the nation, around the world even. Welcome to our worship service. Uh, I was watching that video that sort of a look back at the 70s and 80s and my voice was very high back then. You know, it's like, hey everybody, let's turn in our Bibles, you know. And I spoke very quickly and I had more hair, clearly. And uh, it's great. It's always fun to look back, you know, but I'm not one really for living in the past. I can thank God for what he did and the foundation of this ministry, but I'm so thrilled about what the Lord is doing today and in the future. You know, looking ahead, so much to do such a great opportunity before us. So I would like you all to grab your Bible and turn to the book of Judges. Judges chapter six. And the title of my message is What to Do When the Odds Are Against You. What to do when the odds are against you. So my wife and I were with, with another couple the other night and uh, they were asking us, is one of you the neater one or one the messier one in your relationship? Oh yes, we said Definitely. So he asked, well, who's the messy one? I said, oh, it's Kathy. She is so messy. I said, we go to hotel room. She trashes them like a rock star. It's so embarrassing. She's the messiest person I've ever met. And they're both, him and his wife are like, wow, I can't believe it. I said, I'm joking. It's a, the very opposite is the case. She's very neat, very organized, always tidying up. Right after she makes a meal, she's cleaning it up. She washes my clothes while I'm still wearing them. And I have to say, it's very traumatizing the time I've spent in a dryer. I don't like it at all. But uh, so it's not that at all. But, but I bring this up because sometimes in life, you know, we don't quite finish a job. I, I'll start a project at home and I won't finish it. Kathy always finishes what she begins. And I think in life the same can happen. We say, I'm gonna commit this area to the Lord and I'm gonna be disciplined in this other area, but then a little time passes, I make a compromise here, I neglect something else there, and then I live to regret it later in life. We don't think about the long-lasting repercussions of our actions on our lives, on our children's lives, on our grandchildren's lives, and even our great grandchildren's lives. But there is cause and effect. There is action and reaction. So we have to think about that. So this is our last message in our series on the book of Joshua. You might say, well, Greg, you're in the book of Judges. Did you make a mistake? No, because what we're about to read picks up where Joshua leaves off. About 200 years later, we find out what happened to Israel when they didn't do what God told them to do in the book of Joshua. In our last message, we're seeing Joshua parcel out the land, the promised land that God gave to him and the Jewish people. 
And we remember old Caleb raising up his 85-year-old arm and saying, give me this mountain. But then we fast forward 200 years and it's the year 1256 B.C. and they have not finished the job that they began. They did not drive all the Canaanites out and they came to regret it. And you know, it's a funny thing, but you think about this. Israel was fighting for their survival in the book of Judges and they're fighting for their survival right now before our very eyes as they've been attacked by Hamas and possibly in the future Hezbollah. And behind all of this is Iran and behind Iran is Russia like a puppet master. I read this article today that the Wagner Group, a Russian state-funded private army, is providing Hezbollah with sophisticated anti-aircraft weapons. Hezbollah, described as Israel's monster to the north, is an Iranian-backed foe that claims 100,000 active fighters with a terrifying array of weapons. So the leader of Hamas, who uh, orchestrated this attack on October 7th, uh, told, uh, said in an interview recently, the very existence of Israel is what causes all of the pain, the blood, and the tears. It's Israel, not us. We, he says, are the victims of oppression. This is the man that gave the order to decapitate people, the man that gave the order to burn people alive, the man who gave the order to slaughter even little babies. And he says that they're the victim here. And so when we hear this idea of a two-state solution, we need to understand the reality of what's happening in Israel today. Uh, the leaders of Hamas, Hezbollah, uh, and all of them, even Iran, are saying Israel must be wiped from the face of the earth. Just the other day, 100,000 people marched on the White House, screaming messages like death to Israel and from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. What does that mean? When they say from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, they're talking about a world, a Middle East, in which there is no Israel at all. They want them completely want them to be completely eradicated. And so you see that this is a conflict. It is not gonna be easily resolved. So when we talk about a ceasefire, Let's understand what that means. Let's sort of extrapolate this out and make a comparison. Let's take the size of the nation of Israel, compare it to the size of the United States. Think about the fact that 1,400 Israelis were killed, another 239 were taken hostage. Now, if this happened to us in America, proportionally, this would be like waking up in the morning and reading that 48,000 Americans were killed beheaded, slaughtered, burned alive, and another 8,000 were taken as hostages. How would we react? Would we just say, well, we, we can't respond. We just need to, no, no. We, think about what happened in the aftermath of Pearl Harbor. Think about what happened in the aftermath of 9-11. And that's what Israel is dealing with today. Now here's where it becomes of great importance to a Bible student. The Bible tells us that in the last days, Israel would be scattered throughout the world and they would be regathered in their land again. And the Bible specifically says, when they're scattered and regathered, you know you're in the end times. On May 14, 1948, Israel officially became a nation. Now, the Israelis have been living, or the Jewish people have been living in the land of Israel for 
3,000 continuous years, but they haven't always been in control. Israel becomes a nation again. Then the Bible not only predicts Israel returning to her land, but the Bible says a large force from her north will attack her, identified as Gog and Magog. We don't know for certain who Gog and Magog are, but many scholars believe Magog is modern day Russia. I would concur with that, but no one can say so with certainty. But here's what I can say with certainty. One of the allies that marches with Magog is identified as Persia. Persia changed their name to Iran in 1935. And in the Bible, the word Persia, Persian, or Persians is found 36 times. 35 of those are references to the past. Things that have already been fulfilled, there's only one reference to Persia that has not been fulfilled, and that's the reference of Ezekiel 38.5. It says Persia, or Iran, is gonna be a powerful force in the end times against Israel. This is happening right now. Now let's play this scenario out. So Magog, Gog, attack with Persia, Israel. Then we read that God's gonna intervene and destroy most of this army and he's gonna pour his spirit out on Israel. So we're living in very critical, very significant times. We need to pray for that part of the world and, uh, and watch with great interest because I'm telling you this is a sign of the times this is a reminder that we're in the last days and there's one takeaway message. If you missed everything I just said, here it is. Jesus Christ is coming back again. So be ready for his return. Well, Greg, are you saying he's coming back like tomorrow? Well, he could. It could be 10 years from now. Understand this. This has happened in a way before. We might call them dress rehearsals. It happened in the 73 war. When Israel was celebrating Yom Kippur, they were attacked. Russia was involved in the forces that attacked Israel and many wondered, is this it? And it escalated and then it sort of stopped. This could escalate, this could stop, this could de-escalate, it could get far worse, it could potentially lead to the Ezekiel 37, 38 scenario and maybe it won't. I don't know, I'm not a date setter. I try to be level-headed about these things but I'll tell you what, as I read what's happening right now, the Bible students should pay careful attention. So this fight for their survival is nothing new to Israel. So here we are reading the ancient book of Judges and they're dealing with the same thing. Because they did not drive out all of the inhabitants of the land, they left a few, this came back to haunt them later. Sort of like if you had a big tree in your backyard that was tearing everything up so you cut the tree down but you don't tear up the roots. It come back, comes back later to cause problems. This is what's happening to Israel. They drove out the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites and the Ammonites and the Parasites and every ite. But there was one force now that's in power called the Midianites. The Midianites have Israel under their thumb. Why did God allow this to happen? It was his discipline on Israel. According to Judges it says, Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, so he handed them over to the Midianites. So as we come to this story that happens 200 years after the events of Joshua, uh, we see things are spiritually and morally upside down. Uh, in fact, there's a verse, Judges 17, 6, that sums it up. 
It says, in those days Israel had no king, so the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Let me do a 60s paraphrase. Everyone was doing their own thing. And is that not a description of what is happening in America today? We're all doing our own thing. We're disregarding God. We're taking the Bible. We're deconstructing it. We're saying we don't believe this anymore. We're gonna redefine what a man is. We're gonna redefine what a woman is. We're gonna redefine what the family is. We're gonna do whatever seems right in our own eyes. And now as we sow the wind, we're reaping the whirlwind. And the Midianites, in this case, are in control. Little footnote. The Midianites are the first nation to domesticate the camel. Have you ever looked at a camel? What a weird creature. There's many beautiful animals that the Lord has made. The camel is not one of them. Uh, I've heard it said that a camel is a horse designed by a committee, right? It's just a very strange animal with the hump, but, but they're actually very uh, powerful and effective animals in warfare. They're big, they can move fast, they can go days without water, they're ugly, <laughs> and they spit too. <laughs> I don't have a lot of experience with camels, but over in Israel I've climbed up on one and ridden it around a little bit. And so here's what the Israelis are dealing with. They, they look over the hill and here come the Midianites on camels uh, controlling them. And they're living in despair. And they're crying out to God. And the Lord says in Jeremiah 33, 3, call to me and I will answer you. Now God's gonna answer their prayer. <laughs> and he's gonna answer it by choosing a man named Gideon to be the answer to the prayers of the people. I don't know why God chose Gideon. I certainly don't know why God chose me. I definitely don't know why God chose you. But I know this, if I were God, I wouldn't choose any human being because we mess everything up, it seems. The Lord could just roll back the heavens and poke his face through and say, hello humanity, I'm God and you're not. But instead the Lord chooses to reach people through people ordinary, flawed people like you and me and Gideon. So as our story begins, we find Gideon preparing the little wheat that he had, hiding behind the walls of a small wine press. Hardly a picture of heroism or courage, but this is the man that God chose. So Judges 6, verse 12, we read this. The angel of the Lord appeared and said to him, mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Gideon said, oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all of this happened to us? And where are all of his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, did not the Lord bring us from Egypt? But now, Gideon says, the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours, and you will save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? We'll stop there. Interesting response on the part of Gideon. The angel comes to him. Hey, you courageous man, you man of bravery, the Lord is with you. He says, well, if the Lord's with us, then why have these things happened to us? Where are all the miracles that we heard about in days gone by? Heard the story of a mother who would read Bible stories to her little girl every night before bed. And she would hear the stories of David and Samson and Daniel and, and Ruth and Esther. And, and she said one night to her mom, Mommy, it seemed like God was much more exciting back then than he is now. 
And that's probably how Gideon felt. Like, Lord, you did all these miracles for Israel. We heard about you delivering them from Egypt. And when they entered the promised land, they marched around Jericho and the walls collapsed. And here we are being dominated by these Midianites riding, the, riding these crazy camels. And we're hiding in fear. And God could have rebuked him. He could have said, hey man, you brought this on yourself. But it's interesting the Lord didn't say that. You know, sometimes we find ourselves in situations that are a result of our own bad decisions. And then we have the audacity to blame God for it. You know, you might have a failing marriage. Lord, why do I have a failing marriage? If you love me, you would not let my marriage fail. The Lord could say, maybe it has something to do with you being unfaithful to your spouse. Lord, why, why did I just get fired from my job and I was just fired from another job a month before that and fired from another job a week before that? Why did you allow this to happen? The Lord could say, maybe it's because you're a horrible worker and you're lazy. You show up late, you leave early, and there is some cause and effect here. So God could have said, you brought this on yourself, Gideon, you and the Israelites. But instead, the Lord didn't say that. He said, just go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites, I'm sending you. In other words, Gideon, we don't have time to get into that right now. That'll take too long. Here's the battle plan. I'm gonna bring a solution, and I'm gonna make things different, and I'm gonna do it through you. But Gideon isn't seeing it. He says in verse 15, Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. Another translation puts it this way. I'm the runt of the litter. I'm the lowest of the low. That's how he felt. And now we see some very interesting principles on the kind of man or woman that God will use. If you're taking notes, here's point number one. God uses people who are humble. God uses people who are humble. They're not proud. They're not arrogant. They see themselves for what they are. God tells Gideon what he's going to do through him. In verse 15, Gideon says, who am I? The Lord effectively says, doesn't matter who you are. The real question is, who am I? Listen, buddy, it's me working through you. The Bible says that the Spirit of the Lord is searching throughout the earth for a man or a woman that he can show himself strong on behalf of. It doesn't say he's searching for a strong man or a strong woman. He's looking for someone that will just admit their weakness and their vulnerability, but will say, here I am, Lord, send me. As I've often said, God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. He can do extraordinary things through ordinary people. And it would appear, as you look at the people that God selects in the pages of Scripture, that he goes out of his way to choose the most unlikely people. Why do you think that is? Answer, he wants to get the glory. I mean, this is shown in what he says to Gideon. Verse 12, mighty hero, the Lord is with you. That almost sounds like mockery, mighty hero. It'd be like going to an F student and saying, hey, Einstein. <laughs> or going to a kid that can't throw a football, hey, Tom Brady. Uh, hardly Tom Brady there. But God sees you for what you can become. See, I see what I am. God sees what I can be. What do you see when you look in the mirror? Well, depends on what kind of mirror. If it's a magnifying mirror, you're probably somewhat horrified. <laughs> I was holding uh, my little niece the other day, newborn baby, she's so sweet, and I was just amazed at her skin. 
the, the skin of a baby. And you look at your own skin. <laughs> I just had a visit with my dermatologist and you know, that, that's not a pleasant experience. And so we see our weaknesses, we see our flaws. It's been said mirrors don't lie. Lucky for you, they don't laugh either. <laughs> so I look in a mirror and I see weakness. But God sees potential. I see what I am. God sees what I can be. I see the past and I'm crippled by it. God sees the future. I see a lump of clay. God sees a beautiful sculpture. I see a blank canvas. God sees a Van Gogh. I see a lump of coal. God sees a beautiful sparkling diamond. I see a vacillating, unsure Simon. God sees a powerful rock-like Peter. I see a persecuting Saul of Tarsus. God sees a mighty apostle called Paul. God sees what you can become. I love the story of when Jesus went to the woman caught in the act of adultery. After he dismissed her accusers, he turned to her and he said, woman, where are your accusers? She said, I have none, Lord. He said, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. But it's interesting the word that Jesus used for this woman caught in the act of sexual sin. He called her woman, or we might translate it lady or even ma'am. It's a term of respect. Ma'am, lady. <laughs> She'd been called a lot of things. I don't think anyone had ever called her lady before. She wasn't behaving as a lady at that time. But Jesus didn't just see her for what she was. He saw her for what she would become, you see? The same with Gideon. You man of valor. You man of courage. You're a hero. Gideon just saw a zero. Now a series of tests come to Gideon to prepare him for what he is about to do. The first test happened in his home. The Lord said, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go home. And your dad, Joash, built an altar to Baal, a false god. I want you to tear it down. Gideon's like, uh, okay. You know, but he loved his dad. He respected his father. Obviously, this is gonna cause a lot of tension to tear down his father's altar to Baal. But he does it. But he does it at night because he was afraid of what his father would think. He was afraid of what the people would think. He did tear the altar down but he did it at night, bringing me to principle number two, if you wanna be used by God, you need to be faithful in the little things. Be faithful in the little things. God gave him a little test, a bigger one was, bigger one was coming. Here's a little test, just go take care of this, tear down that altar. Listen to this, God calls busy people. It's been said, if you wanna get something done, ask a busy person. And you'll see that so often when the Lord called people, they were doing something, Gideon, is threshing wheat. Elisha was plowing a field when he was called by Elijah. The apostles-to-be were mending nets when Jesus called them. David was tending sheep. So the idea is they're just doing what's in front of them. They're willing to do whatever needs to be done. Listen, you're never too small for God to use, only too big. If you will say, Lord, I'll do whatever needs to be done, I'll volunteer here you will be amazed at how the Lord will bless you and give you more opportunities. Jesus said if you're unfaithful in small matters, you won't be faithful in large ones. If you cheat even a little, you won't be honest with greater responsibility. So be faithful in the little things. Now, 
Coming back to what Gideon did. He tore this altar down, but he did it at night. Some have criticized him. Why didn't he do it in broad daylight? Well, because he was afraid. But at least he did it. I'd rather do something imperfectly than do nothing. It's so easy to critique people. You know, when we started this church, I have to be honest with you, we had no idea what we were doing. We really didn't. I was 20 years old. I'd only been a Christian three years. But we took bold steps of faith and we said, let's see what the Lord will do. Did we do everything perfectly? Of course not. But we learned from our mistakes. And we've been able to see the Lord do some amazing things over the years. But we've always had our critics. I remember when we started our evangelistic crusades, people said, oh, that's not gonna work. Crusade evangelism died with Billy Graham. And then when Billy started his evangelistic ministry, they said to him, this isn't gonna work. Crusade evangelism died with Billy Sunday, another evangelist. And when Billy Sunday started his ministry, they said it's not gonna work because crusade evangelism died with D.L. Moody. See, it's a, no, crusade evangelism or evangelism in general will never die because God will always raise up someone to do it, someone to preach the gospel. So, but people will push back. Well, I don't like the way you do this, or I don't like the way you do that, or it's not gonna work here and it's not gonna work there. And we just kept going to new places and seeing the Lord work. I heard the story of, speaking of D.L. Moody, a lady who came to him. He said, Mr. Moody, I don't like the way you do evangelism. And Moody said, well, ma'am, I'm always willing to learn something new. Tell me how you do evangelism. She said, I don't. He said, well, I like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it, right? So yeah, maybe Gideon didn't do this perfectly. He did it at night, but at least he did it. Now, here's what's interesting, is after his dad found out, he was kind of proud of his boy. The people in the city were so angry. Kill this guy, he tore down this altar. His father Joash says, well, what, what are you, do you have to defend Baal now? Can't Baal defend himself? And it seems like Joash sees the stupidity of worshiping a false god, and he defends his son. And I love how it starts in the home of Gideon. Listen to this. The hardest people to reach are your own family. The hardest, your family. We read that Jesus did not do many mighty works in his hometown of Nazareth because of the unbelief of his people. Jesus himself said a prophet is not without honor except in his own country. It's hard to reach your family. And think about Jesus. Who was a better example than Jesus? He was the perfect son, never disrespectful, always finished every job he set his hand to. Just absolute perfection. The only perfect man had ever lived on this earth. Imagine being one of the siblings of Jesus. And yes, Jesus did have brothers and sisters, contrary to what the Catholic Church says. He did. And they didn't believe in him until later. And who was a better example than Jesus? Can you imagine Mary lecturing her kids? Kids, why can't you be more like your big brother Jesus? But mommy's like perfect, I know. But try to follow his example. Joseph made a little bracelet for you to wear in his workshop, WWJD, wear this. What would Jesus do? Come on, mom. He's a hard act to follow. They didn't believe in Jesus until he was crucified and resurrected from the dead. But he was a perfect example. But it's hard to reach your family. I think of my own mother. It took years for her to come around. 
Here I was in ministry and leading people to Christ and my own mom was not a believer. And it was so challenging and it wasn't until the age of 70 she made a recommitment to the Lord and sadly she died not long after that but I'm so glad she did make that recommitment. But uh, we have opportunities to reach our family. Of course the holidays are upon us. I have to make a confession to you. I already hung my Christmas lights. That's pagan. Oh no, I think it's a great time to let our light so shine. In this case, literally. And it's weird, I'm the only person in my entire neighborhood with Christmas lights on. Isn't it fascinating how people seem to be more excited nowadays about celebrating Halloween than Christmas? Have you noticed that? People are going big with Halloween now. Adults wearing Halloween costumes. You know, adults trick-or-cheating. That makes me uncomfortable. I just see people wearing masks standing at my door and I feel slightly threatened, right? It's almost like people are downplaying the celebration of Christmas now. So I want more lights. But you know, you gather with your family on Thanksgiving and we probably all come or have extended dysfunctional families, right? Does anyone have a perfect family? I don't think so. And maybe you're the token Christian in your family. And I'm just going to encourage you if you're with family members who are not believers, you don't have to constantly preach sermons to everybody. You might be surprised hearing that from a preacher. But sometimes you need to be the sermon. But here's the thought. You might be asked to do a prayer at your Thanksgiving gathering and you have all these relatives, not all of them are believers. You know, so you have the floor. Seize the moment. And I don't know if you should extend an, an evangelistic invitation during that prayer. Yeah. Let's all just pray. Now while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. There's someone here today that's been an alcoholic for 30 years. Uncle Harry, I'm talking to you. Oh, he passed out again. And if you want to accept Jesus Christ, just raise your hand up right now. God bless you. God bless you. I see that hand. I guess you could do that. I don't know if I would recommend it. Just pray a simple, succinct prayer. Don't pray for an hour. I would just pray something like, Lord, thank you for this food that you've provided. Thank you that we live in a free country. Thank you for this meal Thank you for sending your son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sin and rise again from the dead. And, and thank you for my family. Now bless the food in Jesus' name, amen. You know, and, and you know, just sow that seed, be that witness among your family members. So Gideon took a stand in his home first. Now the next test is coming. This is a big one. God says, get a bunch of men together. Start forming your army. Incredibly, impressively, Gideon manages to form an army of 32,000 men. This is what happened next. Judges 7, verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many warriors with you. If I let you all fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they saved themselves by their own strength. Therefore, tell the people, whoever is timid or afraid, they can leave this mountain and go home. So 22,000 of them went home leaving only 10,000 willing to fight. Wow. Hey, if you, if you don't want to fight, go home. 22,000 guys, see ya, man. Wow. Now he's down to 10,000 men. What a disappointment. 
God was putting Gideon in a place where if the Lord didn't come through for him, he was dead in the water. And sometimes the Lord does this. He'll pull away our security blanket. We don't have all the backup plans in place. And we're facing an emergency. We're facing a crisis. We're facing a problem. It might be a financial crisis. It might be a health crisis. It might be a family crisis. And it's getting worse and worse. And you need to just call out and say, Lord, if you don't come through for me, I don't have any hope. But that's not a bad place to be. Because that means you're in complete dependence upon God. So sometimes the Lord will allow this to happen where we, so we will realize the only way out is Him. There will be times in life where you will face what seem to be insurmountable obstacles, like the Red Sea He wants you to get through, or the towering walls of a Jericho He wants you to fell, or a frightening giant like Goliath He wants you to defeat. But there's God doing His part and then there's us doing our part. There's always his part and our part. The Red Sea parted, but Israel had to march through. The walls of Jericho fell, but Israel still had to march around them. The giant Goliath fell, but David still had to attack him. So Gideon says to the men that don't wanna fight, okay, go home to mommy. Now he's down to a much smaller fighting force. Why did he, dis why did he dismiss those men? Because fear is contagious. Listen to this, if you're looking for an easy life, if you're looking for a life with no conflict, with no challenge, go home to mommy. Because the Christian life is not an easy life. It is a life where you will face spiritual warfare. It is a life where you will need to resist temptation. It is a life where you will need to obey God and be countercultural in almost every way imaginable and perhaps even more so right now than I can remember. But here's the thing. It is the only life that is worthwhile following Jesus Christ. Now one final test. Judges 7, verse 4. The Lord told Gideon, you still have too many. Bring them down to the spring and I will sort out who will go with you and who will not. When Gideon took his warriors down to the water, the Lord said, divide them into two groups and one group put all those who cup water in their hands and lap it up with their tongues like dogs and the other group put all those who kneel down and drink with their mouths in the stream. This reminds me of something that happened years ago. We were in Israel leading a tour. And we came to Gideon Spring, the actual place where this happened. So I wanted to illustrate, and I said to one of our pastors, Steve Wilburn, who was in the video you saw earlier, who's now the pastor of a church in LA called Core Church, I said, Steve, I need you to go down to the water, and I need you to take the water and cup it in your hand and drink it so I can point to you and use you as an illustration. He said, boss, I'm gonna do it. And he went down there. That's how Steve talks, by the way. And so I'm giving the little message on Gideon and I said, look, this is the way they drank the water. And Steve's down there drinking the water and suddenly I notice a sign that says, do not drink water. <laughs> it's toxic and poisonous. Oh no, we're gonna have to pray for Steve to be raised from the dead. <laughs> Fortunately, he was okay. So here are the guys drinking the water. We could divide them into two categories. We'll call them the lappers and the cuppers. The lepers could have been easily ambushed and killed. They just have their face buried in the water, drinking, not alert to what's going on around them. But the cuppers, those who kneeled, bringing the water to their lips, were alert 
cautious, watching. The Lord said, that's it. Now he's got it down to 3% of the original 10,000. This is the Delta Force. These are the Green Berets. These are the Army Rangers. These are the SWAT team. These are the elite ones now that God is going to use. The Lord says, okay, here's a battle plan. You ready? Yes. You're gonna break them into three groups. Excuse me, two groups. And here's what you do. On one hand, you're gonna hold a torch, fire, put a clay pot over it. And on the other hand, you hold a, a sword? No. A little knife? No knife. A trumpet? Oh, really? Isn't this like what happened at Jericho where they're marching around blowing trumpets? What is the thing with trumpets? A trumpet. A torch and a trumpet. Okay. Then what? So you run down the hill. You just say, for the Lord and for Gideon. You smash the clay pot. They see the torch. Blow your little trumpet. That's it. That's it. Wow. And that's exactly what they did. They come running down the hill at night. Boom, they break the pot. Now the enemy see the flame. They blow their trumpet, the sword of the Lord. And of Gideon, the Midianites completely freak out. They're so disoriented, they don't know what's happening and they start attacking each other and kill themselves and God gave to Israel the victory. It's so crazy, but it's classic. And the Lord did it in such a way so he would get all the glory. They were outnumbered 450 to one and they won a crushing victory over the Midianites. This would be like a Pop Warner team beating the New England Patriots or a Little League team beating the Texas Rangers, right? This is ridiculous. How could this happen? It happened. So what's the takeaway truth of all of this? Simple. God is looking for men and women today that will shine their lights in our very dark world. He's looking for people who will make a stand for their faith wherever they are, starting with their family. Because there's a lot of people that I would describe as fair weather followers. You know, they, they say they're Christians, but they won't make the stand. They're like the people that were fearful and afraid. But then there are those that are really committed. And they say, I wanna be used by God. I wonder if some of you are here right now. God can do more with a handful of people that are fully committed than he can with thousands who aren't. Will you be a real committed follower of Jesus Christ? God can do a lot with a little. If you don't believe me, when you get to heaven, ask the little boy that offered his loaves and fish. He offered what he had, God multiplied it, and God used it for his glory. You know, when Jesus walked this earth, a lot of people started following him, especially after he did his most popular of all of his miracles. And which one do you think that was? When he healed blind Bartimaeus? No. When he healed the leprous man? Again, no. How about when he raised Lazarus from the dead? No, that wasn't it either. It's when he provided free lunch and multiplied those loaves and fishes. They're like, uh, you know, resurrection from the dead's great, but free food, now we're talking. <laughs> and the crowd swelled. And they're following Jesus. And Jesus actually challenged them and offered some hard words to them. And thousands of them turned away and he turned to his own disciples and he said, will you also go away? They said, Lord, where else are we gonna go? You alone have the words of eternal life. There's an interesting little passage at the end of the Gospel of John. 
it says that many believed in him when they saw the signs that he did, but Jesus did not commit himself to them. Another way to translate that would be many believed in him, but he didn't believe in them. Why? It tells us because he knew it was in the heart of man. He could see that their faith was fickle. He could see that their commitment was not genuine. So he did not commit himself to them, but then John three starts. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus who came to Jesus at night. And we, saw the, we see the Lord unfolding the truths of the kingdom of God to this man named Nicodemus who came by night, Nick at night. <laughs> if you laughed, you're old because that's a really dated reference, but it's all good. And I've been using it a long time. But why did Jesus open his heart to Nicodemus when he effectively closed it to these other people? Because Nicodemus really wanted to know God. And those other people did not. Yeah, Gideon came and did what he did at night, and so did Nicodemus. But the Lord opened the truth up to him, and he said, you must be born again. We've all heard the news about the tragic death of Matthew Perry, one of the stars of Friends. And I watched a little interview that Matthew did a while ago, in which he said when he was a very young man, he prayed a prayer to God. And his prayer was, God, make me famous. No matter what, more than anything else, my prayer is make me famous. He said a couple of weeks later, he was offered the role that he played on Friends. Careful what you wish for, you might get it. Matthew spent the rest of his life dealing with alcohol and drugs and it was a great struggle. He said in another interview that he was a seeker of truth. I hope he found his way to Jesus Christ. But this is the thing. We think, man, if I just had fame, I would be happy. We did a whole film about it. It's actually over on our new streaming website called Harvest Plus that you can download, a fame called film. We explore the emptiness of fame. And there's so many things that we can choose in life saying this will make me happy and it won't. And there are these tragic illustrations of this, this in the lives of people that have been there, done that, bought the t-shirt and in some cases they've been the t-shirt and they're telling us this is not the answer. It's Christ we're looking for. So God revealed himself to Nicodemus because the Bible says those that seek me will find me. So when I meet someone who says, well, I'm seeking God, my test as to whether or not they're seeking God is how they react to the gospel. It's interesting when someone says, well, I'm seeking God. Well, really, let me tell you what the Bible says. Wait, put that away. Well, it's just the Bible. Put it away. Don't quote the Bible to me, man. Wait, I thought you were seeking God. I am. Have you ever read the Bible? No. Can I tell you a verse from the Bible? No. Wait, if you're seeking God, if you're seeking truth, why, you in, why will you not even listen to what the Bible says? Answer, they're not seeking God. Because God says, I will reveal myself to those that seek me. So if you really want to know truth, you'll at least be open to what the scripture says. And here's what the scripture says. It's what Jesus said to Nicodemus. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, and whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the gospel truth. That's the gospel in a nutshell. And that's what Jesus said to Nicodemus, and that's what he says to all of us right now. So in closing, maybe I'm talking to somebody that has had the bottom in life drop out. Maybe you've realized your dreams and then some. 
Maybe you've checked all those boxes that you thought you should check to make you happy and there's something missing still. It's not something, it's someone. It's Jesus you're looking for. And he's here with us right now in this place speaking to you. Standing at the door of your life and he is knocking and he's saying if you'll hear his voice and open the door, he will come in. So if you need Jesus to come into your life and forgive you of your sin, that can happen for you right here, right now. In a moment we're gonna bow our heads and pray and I'm going to extend an invitation for anyone here that wants to find what you've always been looking for. You know, when I was a little boy, I lived with my grandparents for a few years and I would go to bed at night and I would pull the covers over my head and I would talk to an imaginary character that I made up and I named him Mr. Nobody. And I would tell Mr. Nobody all of my problems. Sad thing is I was 30 when this happened, but <laughs> no, I was actually very, very young. And I would tell Mr. Nobody what was troubling me. I would tell him what happened to me that day. I was reaching out. I didn't know who to talk to. And one day I realized Mr. Nobody had a name. It was Jesus. My little boy way, with as little as I knew, I was trying to find God. And he revealed himself to me, as he will reveal himself to you if you really want to know him. Let's pray. Father, I pray you'll speak to the heart of every person here, every person listening, watching, wherever they may be. If they don't know you, let this be the day they believe. The, the moment they're forgiven of all of their sins, we commit them to you now. Now while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, maybe there's somebody here that would say, I need Jesus today. I want this relationship with God you've been talking about. I wanna fill this hole in my heart, this void in my life. Pray for me. If you want Jesus Christ to come into your life, if you want him to forgive you of your sin, if you wanna to go to heaven when you die, why don't you just raise your hand up right now and let me pray for you. Wherever you are, just raise your hand up. God bless you. God bless you. Wherever you are, just lift your hand up saying, I need, I need Jesus. God bless you. Some of you are watching the screen right now. I can't see you there, of course, but you could raise your hand too. Just saying, I need the Lord in my life. Pray for me, wherever you are. Raise your hand up. Let me pray for you. God bless you. I'm gonna lead you now in a prayer, and I'm gonna ask everyone to pray this prayer out loud after me to sort of affirm those that are praying this for the first time. So again, as I pray, everybody just pray this out loud after me. Just pray these words. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a, save, a sinner. And I know that you're the Savior who died on the cross for my sin. I repent of my sin. I choose to follow you, Lord, from this moment forward. Thank you for hearing this prayer. Thank you for answering this prayer. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. God bless each one of you. Hey everybody, thanks for listening to this podcast. To learn more about Harvest Ministries, follow this show and consider supporting it. Just go to harvest.org. And to find out how to know God personally, go to harvest.org and click on Know God.